Eugene Ball is a trumpet player, an educator, a composer, and he has two fantastic new recordings out. And he is our very special guest on this episode of the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Australian Jazz and Groove Podcast. My name is David Galea and it's a pleasure to be with you to bring you some new music and new perspectives on the Australian Jazz and Groove Composers scene and hopefully you've been turned on to some new artists by listening to these podcasts. Now what do we have lined up for this episode? Well as we mentioned in our intro it's a real pleasure to be able to hear from Eugene Ball, jazz trumpeter and musician from Melbourne. Now Eugene has been on the Australian jazz scene for many years now and has played with as his website says, so many artists from all over the world. Notably, people like Josh Roseman, Wycliffe Gordon, Petra Hayden, Charlie Hayden's daughter, Rufus Reed, very famous bass player. In addition to that, many Australian artists like Paul Brugowski, Mike Nock, Tony Gould, Graham Lyle, Bernie McGann, Don Burrows, the list goes on. And he's also warmed the stage in support acts for international artists like Charlie Hayden, like Branford Marsalis and the Reverend Al Green. And he's also crossed uh, musical paths and played with the likes of John Butler Trio, Tim Rogers, Paul Kelly, Jimmy Barnes, Kate Sobrano, The Bamboos, and again, the list just goes on. He's played with so many different artists. So you can imagine the chat we had was very interesting, and Eugene had some great thoughts on the Australian jazz scene and what it means to run a band on your own. So look out for that interview later in this episode. We also hear new music from Melbourne pianist Luke Howard. He has a new trio recording out. Called Sanctuary. Now we will hear the title track from that. We'll also hear from Melbourne guitarist Matt Hoyne in a track of his 2020 release, Stories We Tell, Songs We Sing. Beautiful album. But first, let's get underway. Let's hear a new track from Sydney band Green Thumbs. Now Green Thumbs is made up of Steve Barry on Hammond organ, Roy Isaac on guitar, and the very funky Hamish Stewart on drums. Now taken from Steve Barry's website, Green Thumb has been explained this way. Sprouted during COVID lockdown after a long time in gestation and unsuccessful attempts to grow passion fruit, Green Thumbs plays original music steeped in the blues and groove with healthy fertilization of modern jazz. And that speaks to the photosynthetic power of sharing a live music space. Great description. A nice reference there to Green Thumbs. So let's hear the first track from the album, which is entitled Cop Show Ripoff. Thank you. 
So that was Cop Show Ripoff from the new Green Thumbs recording. Well, now it's my pleasure to introduce you to Eugene Ball. Now, many of you would know and have enjoyed his music at some point. And he has two recent releases out, one with Ben Hanlon on bass and Anthony Schultz on accordion, beautiful trio album called Land of If, and another from the Eugene Ball Quartet featuring Eugene on trumpet, James McCauley on trombone, James McLean on drums, and Mick Ma on electric bass. And that release is entitled From Down Here. So let's hear the title track from The Land of If recording, and then we'll welcome Eugene to the podcast. Thank you. 
Eugene Ball, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. David, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure, mate. And uh, so glad that you could take time out of your schedule to talk to us. And uh, you have a new recording coming out called The Land of If. That's correct. Would you... That's absolutely correct. It's actually come out, hasn't it? It came out in June. Yes, that's right. It came out in mid-June. Excellent. So can you, let's talk about that because we've just heard a track from it before we came on so can you talk about the project who's on it how it came about and so forth absolutely so the trio is uh well unimaginatively named ball hanlon and schultz and it features myself on trumpet ben hanlon on double bass and anthony schultz on accordion um i work with anthony at uh or in the bachelor degree at melbourne polytechnic and for quite some time we'd discussed the idea of and our desire to play together um and we weren't exactly sure what format that would take but you know we we sort of ben came up in the discussion and he you know he was a really clear choice for a couple of reasons i mean we uh, both anthony and i had previous you know uh existing relationships with him ben was in fact uh a student of mine when i used to teach at eltham high school about a thousand years ago Oh, cool. And Anthony, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's so weird when it comes around like that. <laughs> but I've got, but I've got to say, absolutely um, uh, beautiful and pleasurable when things come around like that. When someone that you've had, um, you know, some effect on, ends up, you know, devoting their lives to music and turning into, you know, a really stunning musician. It's, it's a really, um, I mean, gratifying. It's not quite the right word because it's not a great deal to do with me but it's you know it's certainly heartwarming it's definitely satisfying um, i suppose yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i mean just nice that um yeah somebody really took it seriously and and dug in and i, I mean i've been lucky to have quite a few students um go down that path um but anyway we digress uh, Anthony had also played a lot with Ben um, in a variety of formats, but um, 
Yes, Ben Ben was the obvious choice for us, and you know, particularly for musical reasons reasons because he's, um, I mean, he's an extremely broad musician, but you know, he, he's full time um, double bass player with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and an extremely um, adept and creative uh, orchestral soloist as well. So that kind of um, mm. that 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 level of proficiency on the instrument um, meant that we could write things that didn't necessarily require that, you know, the double bass play the bass role. And that was, that was Mm. of immediate interest to us to just to try and, you know, I mean, already the, the combination of accordion, trumpet and bass is slightly unusual, but it's still really, you know, melody voice, chordal voice and bass voice. Um, But we really wanted to, yeah, challenge the roles of those instruments. So there's times on the album when I'm playing counter melodically, um, times when I'm playing a kind of purely rhythmic, you know, um, role, um, times when Anthony's, you know, playing either rhythmically or melodically, not necessarily harmonically all the time. And Ben, you know, um, often um, comes to the front and takes the kind of the solo voice. So, yeah, that that was the... That was the reasoning behind, well, they were the reasons why we asked Ben um, to come play with us and we were absolutely wrapped that he was happy to do so. Yeah, you can hear that in the recording that you sent me just to have a listen to it. You can hear that there's that definite, obviously, as you said, you know, the, the, the actual roles of the instrument, but the switching of roles. Was that something that you that just organically happened as a group or there were deliberate decisions in the compositional process? There were deliberate decisions in the rehearsal process, not so much the compositional process. A lot of the compositions are, you know, essentially lead sheets. But we made a commitment, um, well, to each other, I guess, early on to not um, rush out and perform too early. We weren't really interested in, you know, doing the usual trick of, you know, kind of, getting together for a rehearsal, you know, mustering together enough material for a couple of sets and going out and trying to do as many gigs as possible. We yeah. kind of did it the other yeah. way. We yeah. we decided that we'd just rehearse a lot. So um, we rehearsed, you know, every second week for, I don't know, probably a year, I think, before our first gig. So that was, you know, it's the first time that I've um, developed material in that way. I think it's the same for yeah, cool. all of us. Uh, and gee, it was it was a really fascinating process. I mean, you know, you know yourself, Dave. It's so often just kind of slapped together so that you can get through a gig, and you and you might have mm, a rehearsal or two right. beforehand to try and, or you know, in, for for upcoming gigs. But but to put um, rehearsal, you know, front and center in the process, um, and and to treat those rehearsals really as um, deliberate, um, open discussions about how to develop the material and, you know, really, um, experimental sessions, you know, we, we'd say, well, let's see what happens if, you know, you do this and you do that. And, you know, I do something completely different, you know, and we'll try it and say, "Mm, I think this was good about that, but that didn't work. So, you know, it was, it was great to really seriously workshop things like that. I think the only time I've ever had that kind of experience was not for that length of time, but that was with um, Andrea Keller 
with I can't remember which of her albums with the quartet it was, but um, she yeah, got cool. some funding for us to yeah re- rehearse in a really developmental way. In fact, we learnt the repertoire um, by ear. She taught us the new tunes wow. by ear. That's so cool. <clears throat> yeah, which was yeah absolutely uh, really unusual for a contemporary jazz setting, and um, you know it made a huge difference. It meant that from from then on, you know, when we started performing the music, we were um, able to play it without the sheet music, which is, you know, extremely rare in a, in a new music setting. Well, that, that's interesting. That just raised, what you just said, raised two questions in my mind. The, the first one, back to the trio, was that this extensive sort of setting up to rehearse without a gig in mind, when you did get to a gig or when you got on the, in the recording studio, how did that translate into like, wow, this is cool, this is happening? Was there definitely that history that you felt come through in that in those performances? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know about you or, um, you know, most musicians, but I often battle um, a certain amount of internal dialogue when I'm playing. Um you know, it's it's tied up in all sorts of things like, you know, the kind mm. of stresses of the day, the stresses of the other aspects of our professional lives, of my professional life, you know, how the instrument's feeling, yeah. Um, you know, how many people are in the audience, who's in the audience, I don't know, all of those kinds of things that, you know, I think a lot of people are susceptible to and it, it, definitely. it actually... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, it plagues me fairly intensely um, and... I just I remember distinctly feeling playing you know our first gig which was at the recital center so it was you know not a not a sort of it wasn't know, a small, backyard gig <laughs> yeah that's right um, it 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 felt I I felt really centered and really um, calm I I knew I knew what was going to happen and I knew that there was enough openness in the music for us to really kind of stretch out um, but I knew what what the kind of sequence of everything was and I knew that everybody you know I knew that the other two players were absolutely on the same track you know should I lose it they they would be able to mm. um, help help set me straight and that's a, you know that's a really uh, to me that's a really gratifying or well, gratifying again the wrong word but a, a really satisfying experience to go okay I, I I feel like we've rehearsed this um, such that I can actually really um, let go and and allow things to happen yeah, that's interesting you say that because live we, we have so many things that come into our mind. Like you said, you just gave us that beautiful list. But to be able to play in a setting rarely when that isn't there, it just feels amazing, doesn't it? It feels like you can sometimes play anything on your instrument. Is that how you feel in this situation or you felt at some time in your career? Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um you know, many, I, I dare say that's what keeps <laughs> lots of musicians going is, is chasing that kind of uh, state of mind. Um, yeah, definitely. It's not, it's not super frequent, is it? But I, yeah, I'm, I uh, feel convinced that the process through which we develop that music really um, allowed for that experience to happen. And e- even recently when we performed for our um, launch, you know, it was between lockdowns and all of that, so we didn't really get a chance to rehearse much before. We did, we did have two rehearsals, um, but on on the gig, it just felt so comfortable, so natural, so yeah, and and so 
um, so 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 comfortable. <laughs> you know, yeah, cool. Like like diving into a warm pool. Somebody once yeah. suggested. <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. It, that takes me back to that other question I was going to ask when you were talking about being in Andrea's band. And so many times as musicians, we do rock up to a gig and it's sheet music or it's lead sheets and we sort of have our head stuck in that in that music stand sort of thing. And, and you know, obviously we can't help it sometimes, but to play, to learn the music orally like that, how did that, like that's a unique experience, but that must have really translated also into awesome live performances. I think so. Um, I, I I was really happy um, with doing it that way. Um, and, you know, I, I think as an experiment, it really worked. And it proved, you know, I mean, it, it proved what to me is just such an obvious thing. And that is, you know, players of improvised music, players of new, well, new compositions that have improvisatory elements we so seldom get to rehearse and the only time we do rehearse is you know on our own time and typically mm-hmm. as you as you kind of you know grow in your career so do so do your peers so do the people you're playing with and so it becomes increasingly difficult to get the you know a mutual time for everybody re- to rehearse mm-hmm. and in fact it sort of starts to feel you know i mean for me with my quartet for instance which i think we're chatting about later um, yeah. Sometimes I feel odd about asking them to rehearse because they're also busy doing other things. It's like, well, you know, it's like it's under my name. I, you know, I, should, I feel like I should pay them to rehearse or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it feels like it's an ask. Um, and so, you know, as a result, we don't we don't rehearse very often at all. You know, we will rehearse once before a gig or before a couple of gigs. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's a real I mean, I don't want to, you know, get into a massive um rant here but you know it's you know we would never ask our symphony orchestras to play a new piece of music um after you know one three-hour rehearsal mm, exactly we don't know uh, we don't yep. we don't ask we don't ask our symphony orchestras to play a piece of music that they've played 50 times with one three-hour rehearsal mm. so you know but but it is it is almost impossible to um, find funding to develop music um, that is, you know, composed and improvised. And, you know, that, that, that is a source of frustration to me. I am, you know, at my age, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really tired of presenting really underprepared new music. I find mm-hmm. it increasingly stressful and increasingly unsatisfying. There was something about it when I when I was younger that was sort of, you know, gave me gave me a bit of a, a boost of energy or something. But yeah, yeah, now yeah. you know it's like kind of living on the edge. But now it's just like, oh, this actually could be great music if we rehearsed a lot. And yeah. you know, um, you know, I mean, Anthony and I could rehearse um, with Ben only because you know, as um, ongoing. Um, staff of the bachelor at bachelor degree at Melbourne Polytechnic, um, perf- you know, performance outcomes are a part of our job description. So, yeah, nice. you know, they're, they're, it, we we can justify, you know, rehearsing semi regularly, you know, as part of our workloads, which is fantastic, and it's very very rare that that happens, you know, mm. um, and we, you know we absolutely appreciate that. And Ben, you know, being um, 
you know, employed by the MSO, um, you know, he had some flexibility there as well. So, but, but, you know, it's, 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 if, if you were dealing with, you know, super experienced, um, musicians who only rely on playing for a living, it would be difficult to ask them to rehearse like that, you know? Mm, yeah. And anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't want to sound negative. I'm just pointing out what's No, I don't feel like, you, no, no, <laughs> it's great because it, it sort of, we had a bit of a discussion a few weeks ago and we were talking about making albums and I think it still comes back into this intrinsic desire as musicians to still make music, you know, like to still make albums. You know, as jazz musicians don't make a lot of money out of their albums like you said, they don't get a time to rehearse. So why do jazz musicians want to keep making albums? Like That's not a question that I don't believe they do. I know they do because I'm one of them. But what is it about jazz musicians that want to just keep, let's just make something anyway, you know? Look, there's there's a couple of aspects to this, I reckon. And, and one is the sort of romantic idea. And I should say from the onset that I think, I think both of these things are true. And... Um, you know, that they probably have different weighting for different people. But, you know, there's the romantic idea that we need to create. We need to keep making stuff. And I, I do feel that. I feel that personally. I know a lot of my colleagues and friends, you know, feel that. They just keep making stuff. Um, the other side of it, though, that I think is, you know, certainly worth acknowledging is that if you don't keep producing stuff, um, you kind of disappear. <laughs> and mm. your profile yeah. is, you know, your highest commodity as a, or most valuable commodity as a, as a musician. So, you know, I think, again, like, and I do, I do not want to sound, sound cynical, but, you know, if, you, if you're not, you know, somewhat, somewhat prolific, um, either as a sideman or as a band leader, then, you know, it's going to be difficult to get, gigs at festivals it's going to be difficult to get gigs at clubs even you know mm, and, unless yeah, right. unless you have albums coming out and there's some level of kind of buzz about what you're doing so it's it's also a part of a professional reality to to publish material
you've been working as an educator for a long time now. Why is education important, do you think, for a jazz musician to be involved in? And has it been important for you to be involved in education? Teaching has been incredibly important important to me uh, over the years for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, historically, musicians have, um, you know, taught in some way as a general rule. I mean... Maybe maybe pop music changed that to a certain extent. I'm not entirely sure, but you know, it's it's certainly um, you know teaching and playing have gone hand in hand for many years, and obviously there's a kind of um, there's there's a balance that that people need to work out uh, for themselves, which is about you know how much teaching you do and how much playing you do. because whilst they feed into each other, they can, you know, start to hinder the other. So, mm. you know, if you do, yeah, I mean, um, you know, if you do too much teaching, you can be too shattered um, <laughs> to go out and yeah. practice in the <laughs> evening, you know, or to go and do a gig. Or if you're doing too many gigs, <laughs> it can be tricky to get up on time consistently and, you know, get out to work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've I've struggled with that balance at time there's at times there's certainly been years in my life where I've been overcommitted in in teaching um and and just kind of had to do that as well as lots of playing um I feel like the balance is right now I'm doing um three days at Melbourne Poly and that's um all I'm doing at the moment in terms of teaching and that's um it's it's actually the the um least I've the least amount of hours I've done teaching for many years and uh, for me, that feels about right. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, sorry, getting, getting back to what I was, well, at least thinking earlier. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, there's rarely a day go past uh, of teaching that I don't learn something about music. And it's not necessarily, I don't mean that I knew something, I, I learned something brand new every single time I teach. But I learned the fundamentals better. You know, there's something about having having to um, package information about music, you know, into communicable chunks. <laughs> and, um, th- you know, that really um, hammers home those core principles to me, you know, to myself. So, mm. um, you know, I... I th- I think the idea of teaching and playing are not as uh, separate as people might think. I, th- I think they can go hand in hand really well and, and both can inform each other. Obviously, playing can absolutely inform your teaching. It would be weird for tertiary level students to, you know, um, study with a teacher who doesn't, you know, perform at least a bit. Mm, um, of course, yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, and I mean, aside from that, you know, I mean, students find it inspiring to go and hear uh, a teacher play, you know, in the wild, as it were. In the wild, um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, look, I, 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 teaching has always been very important to me um, b- because of that, because it's helped me learn a lot about music. It's helped me, it's helped me learn... Um, 
yeah, how to well in art by as I said by articulating fundamentals, they keep those fundamental fundamentals keep getting reinforced, and that's mm. just invaluable, I believe. I noticed in a discography you've played a lot with um, the late great Alan Brown, and we've spoken mm. a little bit about him on this podcast. How does playing with someone like him give you an education from the bandstand? Uh, of course, there is one, mm. and we could talk forever about it. But is there a link that now that he's passed that you can constantly still see that link, what you've got from when you played with him? Oh, absolutely, un- undoubtedly. I mean, um, Al's, I mean, of of the many um, major um, prongs of Al's philosophy, because <laughs> there were quite a few, <laughs> uh, you know, one, one of the main ones for me was just, like go hard play you know i mean as corny as it is play each gig as if it's your last yeah um and you know i i know for a fact that he did exactly that mm. um and there's you, you know to me the well because of that tutelage the idea of risk taking and improvising uh you know, so deeply intertwined there. Mm. I, I, you know, I don't think, um, I don't think I'm improvising very well if I'm not taking risks and those yeah. risks, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether they are or are not coming off. Um, I, I, yeah, I, for me, improvising is almost synonymous with risk. Yep. Um, and that's what you I'd got just, from playing with Alan. Is that one of the things that, you, you still? That's one of the main things. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, you know, always, always take risks and totally be prepared for it to not work out because that's, you know, it it takes you somewhere else. I mean, yeah. Yeah. All, 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 it's it's funny to me because a lot of these things sound really corny <laughs> when they're, yeah, when they're sort of no, taken, taken out of context, but it's like you know they're just so. They they was they were so true and and you know Al put them sort of so simply and so eloquently you know the other thing that I really um, take from my time with Al is you know the idea that traditional jazz or jazz from an earlier you know jazz that takes influence from earlier styles and you know arguably or you know, allegedly more contemporary contemporary jazz. You know, they're they're not so different at all. I don't believe. Mm. Um, e- even if I look at, um, you know, older musicians, if I think about George Lewis, the clarinetist, and um, you know, Ornette, <laughs> there's mm. there's similarities there, that really clear similarities in my mind. That that show that it's not so much you know the notes that they're playing or even the the context in which they're playing them but but the the intent with which they're playing them that's the Mm. the thing that links that music um so you know i mean al obviously was a uh, genre jumper (laughs) and um that's very much a part of my relationship with improvised music is you know I, mm. I have a long and deep history with early jazz styles um and you know it's it's what i listened to when i was young my dad's a traditional clarinet player um and i absolutely adore playing that music well with um 
you know, with people who are equally into it and equally adventurous. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely love, you know, playing more contemporary jazz and, you know, uh, free jazz, if you want to give it yep. a label. <laughs> you know, I, I, a label. I, and I don't really... I don't really feel any different when I'm playing, you know, in either of those yeah, extremes, right. if you like. You know, I mean, I know there's a there's a different sort of language I might hearken to or something like that, but it's not mm. it's not it's not purposeful. I don't I don't feel like I'm putting on hats. Yep. It just feels like I'm responding to what I'm hearing around me and that response is informed by, you know, a really broad listening and a really broad experience. This album, The Land of If, 
and also the new one you've got coming out under your quartet uh, from down from down here. But these are, in a way, sort of non-traditional makeups. You've got accordion, trumpet, and double bass with the trio album. No, no drums or anything. But the next one, you've got, you know, trumpet, trombone, electric bass, and drums. So there's no harmonic, so-called traditional harmonic elements. Are you drawn to those more to those non-traditional types? Is that the way you naturally compose, or it's just what sort of fell in your lap? Great question. Um, it's largely because I'm drawn to those. Uh, formats. I think I'll preface this by saying I'm not professing here that like my music is the most adventurous and you know radical music in the universe. <laughs> but I do find I I do feel or believe that a lot of musicians, a lot of jazz musicians, make music in formats that they don't necessarily question. You know, they might play yep. in a in a piano trio or in a in a you know in a quartet with a piano trio, f- without really asking, well, why am I doing this? Why is it this instrumentation? Mm. And you know, I think it's important to ask those questions. Um, and for me, changing the instrumentation uh, makes me think very differently about composition and makes me make different decisions when improvising Mm, that's interesting yeah so it's for for me it's a way of immediately just changing the rules of the game for myself Mm, mm. you know um so it yes it is largely that but it's also to do with people so you know anthony Mm. and i as i said we wanted to play and ben was uh, a really obvious and welcome choice uh, with the quartet, um, which is uh, with Mick Maher on electric bass, James McLean on drums, and James McCauley on trombone, um, that's about the people as well. It's you know I I have um, a long <laughs> and um, you know still developing beautiful friendship with each of those players, mm. um, and I. You know, I, I I don't know when asked to put a quartet together. Um, actually, I I didn't use electric. I didn't ask Mick uh, first of all. Um, I was playing with a double bass player, but they proved you know very very um, well. They they ended up moving state actually, and then rather than just replace that quite special player with you know another um, double bass player, I, I mm. thought it would be better to bring um you know a really unique voice into um the quartet and mick you know has been really developing such a unique voice on the electric bass mm, definitely. um yeah and you know that's really coming through in this uh in the new album it's like you know he's he's kind of a star in it really i mean <laughs> i've got to say i feel like uh <laughs> um the, the three others, uh, so not myself, are really the stars of the album. They just, you know, play so remarkably. And, they, you know, so much of the music is improvised. Yeah, right. Um, coordinated improvisation, if you like, or, you know, there's there's certain structures in place. But, um, yeah, so much of it is improvised that it really is about, you know, their uh, musical voices, you know, much more than my composition. 
don't you find that when you do write music and you, you collaborate with great musicians that you don't it takes away from you might be the one who wrote the music and put the project together but it doesn't become about mm. you it becomes more about a collective which is that band thing that we're trying to talk about where we can rehearse heaps but you can still get an element of that can't you when you surround yourself with these great players absolutely and that's why uh, that's why i think it took me so long to put a band together under my own name i mean you know i i um um was you know the founding member of a, a, a lot of um bands um you know the hoodangers is, is probably the the closest thing that I, that you know i mean i led i mean in in some ways musically yeah um but yeah it wasn't until i was you know in uh, practically 40 that i put together a band of my own you know under my own name and and part of it is that it well exactly what you said that you know um groups of musicians you know develop something that is much much bigger than you know well the strength or the sum of its parts um mm. on the strength of the individual voices in that ensemble you know and i think that part of me is just what is the what is the right way to say this part, part of me is concerned that by putting my name to it i'm detracting from the from the value of the input that they're putting in yeah, I understand. Yep. Yeah, it's like well, it's not it's not mine. I mean, I, I I try to help get the thing off the ground, but it's really their voices. You know, all mm. of our voices that are important in this discussion or you know, in 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 the music. So, mm. um, yeah, I I hope that makes sense. It's it's almost like you're really as a band leader, you're making an opportunity. That's all you're creating is an opportunity, isn't it? That that's a great that's a great way of looking at it. I think. Um, and yeah, I, I, that is a fantastic way of doing, it. I mean, bringing compositions in brings another element into the equation or an, another sort of level of ownership or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I think at times in, in composed and improvised music, the, the, you know, so much of the emphasis is on the composition when really it's only a vehicle for the improvisation. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, right. obviously, composing's hard, and and you know, it takes somebody to do it. And you know, I love doing it. I, I do it a lot. I've done, mm. I did a, did a lot on you know all of the quintet albums with Al, um, on all of the albums with the Hoodangers, um, contributed to Ishish al- Ishish albums. You know, it's mm. been it's been a part of what I do for sure. But um, yeah. Anyway, I think sometimes uh, composition can overshadow you know the collective improvisation. It's been really a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been really interesting and I think we could keep talking for a long time about so many interesting topics. I'm just Uh, getting started. (laughs) Maybe we'll rain check for another day, hey, because it's, um, you know, it's really nice to talk about the Australian scene in a bit more of a, you know, being honest about it, I think, and we've been a bit honest today. So it's been great and I appreciate that. And um, all the best with the new album coming out. And I really hope we can get back to doing some playing soon live without lockdowns. Uh, I reckon. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. It's, uh, it's really helpful for you uh, to be doing this to, you know, give us somewhere to um, chat.
So that track was Constance from Eugene Ball's latest quartet album called From Down Here. And that recording is actually being released on a Japanese label called Nemboku Records. And just to give you an idea of what Nambuku Records are all about, their Bandcamp page says that they are a collective instrumentalists, beat makers, composers, rappers, and filmmakers who work with experimental forms of music, video, and art. With a rich interdisciplinary collective approach to music making, Nambuku's sound bridges diverse genres from hip hop and jazz to noise and to contemporary classical music. Now, many of you would know of pianist and composer Aaron Chilau, who was originally from Melbourne, now living in Japan, and he is the creator of this label. So go check them out online, and you'll also find Eugene's quartet album there under that label, so that you can purchase that recording there and continue to show your support. But a great new label that's been started there by Aaron Chilau in Japan. Now, we're sticking with Melbourne, and it's great to share an album that I stumbled on when researching Melbourne bassist Tamara Murphy, who, by the way, will be our special guest on the December edition of the Australian Jazz and Group podcast. She plays bass on this album that we're about to feature, which is entitled Stories We Tell, Songs We Sing, from guitarist Matt Hoyne. This track features Matt on guitar, Marinda Diaz Jayasinha on vocals, Tom Noonan on saxophone, Tamara Murphy on bass, as we said, and Louis Pierre on drums. And this is a great recording with beautiful artwork. And if you go to Matt Hoyne's Bandcamp page, you can even watch an animation by the graphic artist who produced this beautiful cover art. So here's the first track from the album, which is entitled Anniversary. Drowned in the fresh bed 
So that was Anniversary from Melbourne guitarist Matt Hoyne of his Stories We Tell, Songs We Sing release from 2020. Well now we've come to our last track for this episode and again it's a Melbourne theme as we hear the title track from pianist and composer Luke Howard's latest trio recording which is entitled Sanctuary. The Luke Howard trio is made up of Daniel Ferrigia on drums, Jonathan Zion on bass and Luke Howard on piano as we said and this is a beautiful contemporary trio album. And I believe they will be releasing this recording officially at the Melbourne International Jazz Festival on Thursday the 2nd of December at the Jazz Lab. So here is Sanctuary from the Luke Howard Trio.
So that was Sanctuary, taken from the Luke Howard trio and his latest release. And as we said, that is officially being released as part of the Melbourne International Jazz Festival on December the 2nd at the Jazz Lab. So go and get some tickets for that. I believe they are still available. Well, again, we've finished another episode of the Australian Jazz and Group podcast, and I would just like to thank our very special guest, Eugene Ball, for taking the time to sit down and talk with us on this episode. And as we mentioned, next month, we'll be talking to Melbourne bassist and composer Tamara Murphy about her latest recording, Low Lights, with her Spirograph Studies band. So be sure to tune in for that episode. So thanks again for checking out the music. Please support these artists by visiting their Bandcamp pages and purchasing their music. That's the best way to show your support for them. And please keep telling people about the Australian Jazz and Group podcast so more people can discover some new music. But for now, thanks again. My name is David Galea, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.